I'm a happy person. Sorry, give me one second. Sorry. All right, we're continuing our series in First Peter. Um, it's been a little while since we've been been here. Um, to recap, um, I think everybody's been here for most of these, but it's always good to set an even context. Um, the letter of Peter was written by the Apostle Peter um, around about the early 60s. It was written to Christians in Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, that were experiencing the challenges of being a minority culture amidst the broad Roman culture um, and trying to have to maintain that identity. Um, it was to address those challenges and encourage them in how they could live a faithful identity, holding to who they were in Christ, while also proclaiming a good message. This was a diverse group of people that um, Peter wrote this letter to. It was geographically diverse. Uh, Asia Minor val- uh, ranges from seaside towns up into little small towns in the mountains. It was an ethnically diverse group. Uh, with people ranging all the way from northern Europe that had settled in that area. Um, And it was a diverse group in terms of class. We had wealthy and we had poor in this group that Peter was writing to. One thing they did all have in common was they were all part of the Roman Empire. And, And that shaped something of how, of the context in which they lived. So we're talking about politics today. Uh, Mostly Peter is writing to a government, to a people and a government that is not supportive of their lives and at times and eventually in the future outright hostile to it. And he's writing to encourage them and how to live in that context. For most of our time in 1 Peter, we've actually been in the introduction to the letter. Um, pretty much the introduction runs from the start of the book through about the 10th chapter, sorry, 10th chapter of the five-chapter book, the 10th verse of the second chapter. Um, we just left that. That's what starts with who the letter is addressed to. It goes in through this doxology that talks about how God upholds this full path of salvation and the blessings and riches we have received in this. And then it gives some fairly pointed challenges of transformation, both personally and corporately. And can somebody grab my water? It's in the row. Becca's in. And then it lands with this summary, which we covered a few weeks back. This is verse 9 from chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To say that it's the introduction is not to say that it's unimportant. It's actually crucial. It's the foundation upon which Peter will build the rest of this letter. He wants these people to see that there's somebody who has been transformed, that they've been taken from one way of life and brought into another one, that once they were not a people, now they are a people. Once they didn't have mercy, now they have mercy. 
They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They have been made into something to proclaim God's excellencies. Which raises the question, how? And that's what Peter turns to address in the body of the letter. The reason he was writing this letter was to say, how? How do they maintain this identity? How do they proclaim these excellencies in the midst of a culture where they are not the dominant voice? And he lands on, that's what he opens it up with, um, verse 11, which is what Terry covered a couple weeks back, this, this section, which opens the body of it, the uh, text. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So how do we do this? How do we maintain, a test, maintain this life and maintain a good testimony proclaiming God's excellencies? Two ways. We abstain from that which wages war against our souls. And we keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, doing good. And Gentiles in this text is basically referring to pretty much the non-Christians. The rest of the Roman Empire that they find themselves in the midst of. They're to abstain from that which wages war against the souls, which is what Terry touched on a few weeks back. There are a number of vice lists in the New Testament, and the fun thing about them is they apply to everybody. I mean, you dodged orgies, congratulations. Um, you probably are still getting hit by envy. Um, nobody can honestly come to the Bible and look at the lists of things that outlines for, that we should be abstaining from and avoiding and say, I've got it, I'm good, put the book away, we're done here. If you don't feel your conscience pricked by looking at that, of something else that we should abstain from, something that we see that is waging war against our souls, you're not listening. But it's not simply an abstaining. We're also meant to do something good. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. So that when they, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. It's not so if they speak against you as evildoers. So when they speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Terry didn't get to that last section. Um, I think he intended to circle back around on it the next week, but um, life intervened. That is a <laughs> complex section. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, it's really, you got two broad paths. It all depends on what this day of visitation means as to what, when they're glorifying your good deeds. It's basically option A is this day of visitation is the, the end of this age when Jesus returns and the day of visitation is largely an act of judgment. It's the people who have stood against God and his ways, who have been looking at good acts and reviling them as evil. When they see Jesus and they see the holiness that he brings, their eyes are opened and they glorify God in awe at the good that was done that they were, while they were reviling it. On the other hand, the day of visitation could be more of a, an act of mercy. When God visits a person in their life and brings them into his kingdom, when he opens their eyes in the midst of how they were walking, and they see the good deeds of Christians that had been among them that they had reviled, and they recognize suddenly as Jesus was good, those, those were good as well. This was my story. I, for those who don't know, I became a Christian at 23-ish, somewhere in that range. Um, 
Prior to that, I didn't like Christians. I thought that what they did largely was a negative impact on the world. And when I became a Christian, one of the things that I underwent was actually seeing that not all, but a lot of the things that I had reviled Christians for were actually acts of good. Now, the text itself, both of those ideas can really be supported from Scripture, from the broad story. The text itself, people argue back and forth on this. And to be honest, I don't know how important it is, and it's possible the ambiguity is just the way it was meant to be written. But because the point is, while we're doing these good acts, they aren't necessarily seen as good at that time. And they won't be seen as good until a point when these people see God for who he is. And at that point, there's a transformation. In either case, there is a duration of time during which these good acts are done and Christians are reviled for them. None of that is the passage I'm trying to get to. But what the point is, these two ideas, abstaining from evil and doing good, even though it's reviled, undergird the rest of the section that follows. Because what Peter's going to do is he's going to move through different relationships. He starts broad, government, moves to slavery, then goes to marriage relationships, then he basically opens back up to just general Christian conduct. And if we don't keep this idea in mind, both the fact that we're doing this to maintain our own walks and to give a good testimony and the general ways in which he's saying to do this, to abstain from evil and to do good amongst the Gentiles, this just starts to feel like legalism. But we're meant to see in this conduct, this context of these two broad ideas shaping this. This week we're doing government. Next week, I get slavery, which I realize means in our general context of America, I'm doing politics and race through religion in two weeks. So see how many third rails I can grab at once. Um, But this week's government. And the question is, what is Peter saying about this? Before we get into the text, it starts in verse 13, which I promise I'm getting to. It's good to take a look at the context into which Peter was writing this. Because if not, we can basically look and say, okay, cool, this applied to this government, but he hasn't seen ours. So what was the context when Peter was writing this? It's really two general conservative dates. It'd be either during the persecutions of Nero or right before them. I generally take the date it's right before the persecutions of Nero because he doesn't mention them as directly as I would expect if he was writing in the midst of them largely because those hit Rome the hardest. And it's a great example from a person writing from Rome to say, this is what we're standing with here. You can do it out there. But either way, it takes place during the reign of Nero. So who is Nero? Um, His Wikipedia page is interesting. Um, So is my source for history here. A little bit commentaries, but if you want to know the details of Nero, it's more fun to read the broad one. This is a guy who became emperor fairly early and murdered his mom. So he's off to a raucous start. Um, To be fair in his defense, his mom was pretty bad herself, murdered a lot of people who got in her way. Probably the root of the conflict between him and her was she wanted to reign through him and he wanted to reign himself. So one thing we do know is he had her shipwrecked with the intention of her dying in the shipwreck. She survived the shipwreck, gets to shore, somebody sees her, says that wasn't supposed to happen, and kills her there. This is Nero. He also murders multiple other people who get in his way, including his stepbrother. He then divorces his wife and exiles her because she's barren. When 
the Roman society has an outrage over this exile, he figures I'll remove the source of the problem so he has her executed. This is Nero. Um, he then, there, he is, there is a large fire in Rome. He is credibly blamed for the fire. The fire destroys at least three districts of Rome, damages a bunch of other ones. At that time, Nero was not fond of the Roman architecture and wanted to see it improved. The problem was there were buildings there. So at the very least, the fire plays into his desires. There is the story that was put forth by some of his opponents at the time that he was fiddling while Rome burned. It's probably fictitious, but the point is he was credibly blamed. He was bad enough that people were like, yeah, that kind of makes sense that he started the fire. He, feeling the, uh, the blame for this, scapegoats the Christians, this rising religious minority, and then persecutes them. And it wasn't just like what you could do, I guess from a reasonable tyrant, of rounding up a handful of them and killing them in a nice clean way. No, the persecutions were cruel. The two broadest things that were done was dressing the Christians in animal skins, and tossing them out with wild animals who would tear them apart. That was the daytime portion. And then at night, you take the Christians and you stick them on a long pole, cover them in pitch, stand their poles up, and light them on fire to light the, the walkway. So that's Nero. That was who was emperor when Peter writes this. Even if this hasn't reached its peak, and he is bad enough that he essentially also then gets run out of power and it leads to even more chaos in the Roman Empire. He was bad enough that Rome was like, this guy can't be it anymore for us. But this is Nero, the emperor, who is, who is the emperor when Peter writes this. And even if the persecutions hadn't hit their uh, peak, or really even started up, the spirit knows what's coming when it, this was inspired. And that's all to say, there's not a Trump exception to this scripture nor was there an Obama exception or a Clinton exception or any other portion of American's government where we can go, nope, it was sunny back then, we've got the bad leader, this doesn't apply to us. So whatever Peter's gonna say has import for us. Before looking at that, it's also good to consider why the Christians were persecuted. Why this group? Because Rome is essentially a polytheistic, syncretic, uh, system. You could worship whatever you want as long as it eventually sat under the worship of the emperor and Rome itself. Rome stood at the peak. Christians disagreed with that. They were happy to get along, but they could not say, yes, Caesar is supreme. And there were a number of ceremonies and rituals and festivals that were designed to both express and reinforce the supremacy of the emperor. And Christians simply refused to take part in this. I think what's important to see there is it wasn't an active pushing against Rome, an active preaching against the empire, an active front-on assault on the emperor that was what actually drew the ire. It was a simple refusal to participate in the cultural markers of that day. To show deference to the right thing was enough to get the Christians' loyalty questioned and their morality questioned. 
And that set them up that when pressures got bad, they were primed to be called out for persecution. So that is the context into which this is written. So what do you write to people who are under a government that is going to turn that oppressive that quickly? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for, for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Be subject. That's the driving force there. Not rebel, not resist. It's also not cozy up to or seek to rise in power. Simply be subject to the emperor. To the emperor and to the people who are sent to him. Remember, this is going to um, people who are in Asia Minor. These are people who might never, likely will never see the emperor. But they know the governors that have been sent by him. And they are to be subject to those people as well. Using random things for us to do. He doesn't just have a bunch of hoops that he, it's not that boring in heaven that he needs something to entertain him. But rather, it's that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We are to do good, sorry, we are to be subject and do good, again, good that's going to be reviled, that by doing so, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's an act of speaking in our simply doing good that silences the ignorance of foolish people. Now, ignorance of foolish people does not mean, it's like, like the bad thoughts of dummies. Foolishness or folly in the Old Testament has a moral component to it. It's opposed, the opposite is wisdom. Wisdom finds its root in the fear of God. Folly, folly or foolishness finds its root in the rejection of God and his ways. So this is the ignorance of people who have rejected God. They are culpable in this ignorance. And by doing good, we are to silence them. We are to remove objections. We are to remove needless objections. I mean, you consider if Peter had written this and says, basically saying, take up arms against the emperor. There becomes an objection to Christianity, which is simply, these people are trying to overthrow this empire for their own power. There's objections which start to obscure the message of Jesus in not honoring the emperor and not being subject. If we leave the chaos of our current political environment and just jump back to the chaos of a decade ago, I'm sure there was not chaos at some point, maybe. There was, at that time, when Obama was elected, constant conspiracy mongering, oftentimes by Christians, that called into question, that had accusations about where he was born and about his true religion. And they were passed about by Christians. 
And the sad thing is it revealed oftentimes that Christians' loyalty was more to a political ideology than to the God of their scriptures. And it revealed, sadly, a racism that runs through the church. And that is terrible for so, so many reasons. But one of the things it does is it puts up false objections to Jesus, where people can simply say, I can't be a Christian because I'm not racist. That sentence should never follow, but Christians have behaved in such a way that it can. I'm so far off my notes, I have no idea where I am. Now that said, we are to do good to remove false objections. But we have to recognize, because the other thing that tips this way is sometimes we think, okay, what they really don't like is us and the false objections we raise. We cannot conceive that if we were simply to remove all the false objections, everything would be great. Again, doing good, they revile you. Or they'll revile you while doing good. Because if we take away all of the false objections around Jesus, what are we left with? Jesus. And at the time when Jesus was most purely displayed to this world, what did the world do with him? It crucified him. Jesus provoked more fury in three years than the average church does in its lifetime. I was realizing when I was writing this, I realized I can't picture Jesus having a 30-year ministry. It just, it was, it was ratcheting up to reach a point in three years where it was going to either pop into a full-fledged worldwide revival or they were going to kill him. It's hard to picture Jesus at like 75 in a pretty comfortable ministry. So that's Jesus. Objections removed. There's still persecution. There's still a rejection. What it does is it forces the issue because people followed Jesus as well and lives were transformed. Our goal is not to act in such a way that the slide into Christianity is just like, it's just basically no different than over here. It's just this with Jesus on top of it. But it is to remove the false objections to Christianity such that Jesus himself might stand as the thing to which that people either follow or reject. And we do this not for ourselves, but for others. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, the funny thing is, those two lives aren't actually in the Greek. There's no verb in this sentence. You're supposed to supply it yourself. That's kind of how Greek works. It's not odd. Um, they pulled in live. You could also could argue, and I think it's reasonable to argue, it should actually be pulled from the last thing that was commanded. Just repeat the verb is what you often do, which would make it be subject as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but being subject as servants of God. We have been set free that we might be servants. We have been set free to be subject so that objections might be removed. We have been received great privileges. Again, the opening of this letter was to outline this, to say how much we've received, 
how much we've been given, the inheritance we have, so that we might know that when we're asked to lay things aside, it's not from a position of poverty, but it's a position of privilege where we willingly do it because we serve someone else for the good of the people he has sent us to and placed us among. And this all gets summarized in the four commands. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We're to honor two things, everyone and the emperor. And there is a subtle dig there. The emperor is given all the honor that everybody else is. Similarly, at the earlier portion of this thing, when it says be subject, ESV has it, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the literal, transla literal translation there would be to every human creature. So to people in a culture where the emperor is set up as a supreme, almost deified being, Peter writes, be subject to every human creature. So he's putting things in context. The emperor is a creature to whom we are to be subject. We are to honor him. We are to honor everybody. We're to give the emperor the honor that is due to anyone who bears the image of God. And we are to love the brotherhood. And this is not a love that precludes loving everyone else. This is similar to Paul in Galatians, where he says the, tells the Galatians towards the letter to do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. We are to love everyone, even our enemies, even the emperor. But there is a special love that is meant to bind the people within the body of Christ to one another. And finally, we are to fear God. And very notably, we are not to fear the emperor. This is not a fear of running away and cowering. This is not a fear of groveling before. This is a reverent, respectful odd fear that recognizes that we are in the hand of someone who could blink us away. It's recognizing God for who he is and respecting him in that way, knowing that he is our father who loves us, but recognizing that simply because he's our father who loves us, he has not become something that's domesticated. He is still the almighty God who spoke this world into being. And that fear is important, and it has to be kept front and center, because there's, this whole passage raises a question. Is the church called to some form of quietism? Are we supposed to just duck our heads down and do as best we can to not be noticed so that we might preach a little bit here and there when they let us? Do we look at every evil that comes our way and make sure that we are, in the name of being subject, we don't raise an objection lest we anger somebody in power. If it wasn't the Christians that had come as the persecuted group, if Nero had chosen a different group, if he'd chosen the Jews, because this has happened, and he said, okay, loyal subjects, help us identify and find these people, would the Christian response to have been subject to line up to help Nero in that act? <coughs> I mean, on a large scale, the question is, does the church still have a voice to speak prophetically to the government, to the culture, or is there a call here to simply be quiet to get along? 
I mean, there's also a question of how we work to right, right wrongs, what we do in a government like ours where we have a voice. That's all for next week. Because the answer to the question of if this is simply preaching a quiet, docile church that keeps its head down at all times, the answer is no. And it's because we fear God and serve him and not the emperor. We are subject to the government because we are truly subject to God. That's the order that goes in. We do not fear the government. We do not fear the powers of the government. We recognize that we are people who are meant to have God as our king. That's why I had Dan read the uplifting section of scripture before this. But we realize that while we are here on earth, God's instruction to us as our king, as the one who is supreme, is to submit and be subject to these earthly authorities. But Peter supposes a conflict in the midst of this. Again, that we are to do good expecting to be reviled. This church, which to whom these instructions were written, and Peter's writing these from Rome, from the Roman church, which then provokes the ire of the empire enough that the Christians become persecuted. So something about the way that this is applied to their lives provokes the culture enough that it says these people need to be removed. So this isn't just ducking our head down out of fear so that we might get along and be able to preach Jesus in the corners. It's recognizing that there are lines in removing objections. Later, Peter will talk about how um, the culture is shocked that the recipients won't join them in debauchery and it maligns them because they don't. If removing objections is the ultimate good, then joining them in debauchery might have been the best path. Because there's probably a lot of people who are like, I'd be cool with the Jesus as long as I can do this debauchery thing. They probably wouldn't call it debauchery, but you know what I mean there. Or maybe they do. Down for debauchery. There's your sound, there's your sound bite. Yeah, down for debauchery, Dan. Um, but what this requires is a constant wisdom. I mean, it's complex. It requires being led by the Spirit. I mean, we're going to make mistakes in how this gets applied because the question is, where is that line? When do we simply, in the name of removing objections, be subject? And when do we go, no, this is the way we can do this? I will be subject to you here, here, and here, but when your festival comes along that requires me to proclaim that Caesar is Lord of all, I'm not showing up. It takes wisdom to, do, to make those decisions. And the problem is, in order, we're, we're going to err a lot in making those decisions. I mean, the church has erred remarkably throughout the years. We're going to continue. We do so in our daily lives every week. But we're going to err even more the degree to which a fear of something else is coming close to our fear of God. 
and we're going to err terribly if it surpassed it. We are a people who are not meant to fear anything. Yet we do, and God knows that because we are very squishy flesh. But we are meant to not fear anything so that when the question comes of is this the line or is that the line, the decision is not made on who I should be fearing. It's made based on what the one whom I serve ultimately is asking of me in this moment, and I'm able to hear with less clouded ears. We do not become mindless slaves aping whatever the culture is doing by being when we go or whatever the government wants us to when we be when we are following the command of being subject to the government. We are subject as free people. We yield our privilege where appropriate for the good of others. And the funny thing is, to some extent, from the natural perspective, this puts us in the worst of both worlds. We basically live in a situation, if you just take this life, where we follow God and have to abstain from all sorts of things, and we also manage to do just enough to provoke the ire of everyone, while also giving up a lot of the privileges we have and that we know we should have in following him, like the fact that he is the one who actually reigns over us and not other powers. We give that up in our subject over here, so we better to have two bosses, which if you've ever had that at work, it's absolute hell. But that's what we do. We accept the challenges that come with Christianity while also giving up a lot of the privileges for the sake of others. From a natural perspective, that is the worst possible option. It's why, to paraphrase Paul slightly, if it's just this life, we are, of all people, the most to be pitied. Because we've given up a ton to follow God and yet gain nothing for it. But, as Terry said, helpfully, before I spoke, this life is not all we have. The resurrection did happen. When Jeremiah spoke to the Jews who had been brought into exile and told them to seek the good of the city, he did so because he knew prophetically what was going to happen, that they were going to leave Babylon that they were going to go back to where they were meant to be. That this was a temporary situation that was going to find a right resolution. And that these people who had oppressed them, whose good they were seeking, were going to be judged for the wickedness they had done. The oppressive power of Babylon fell. So Jeremiah could say, with all earnestness, seek the good of these people without saying, yes, that's because Babylon is the greatest thing ever. Two thousand years ago, or thirty years prior to Peter writing this, the one who had all privilege, who had never tasted or been subject to any other power, took on flesh. 
He'd never felt weakness. He'd never yielded to someone else. But he took on flesh and all that comes with it. Jesus came to walk this earth in a human body. And for that, for that, for the sake of his mission, he subjected himself to all the powers of this world. Not simply passively doing whatever they wanted, but submitting where it was appropriate and still speaking the truth where it was appropriate. And he did with right wisdom because he's Jesus. I mean, there's a great passage along those lines where they're upset because he's not paying the temple tax. And, Peter, and Peter's, actually Peter, now I think about it, Peter is uh, concerned about this, and he goes to Jesus about it, and Jesus explained, he's like, essentially, Jesus' answer is, I shouldn't have to pay a temple tax. I mean, I'm the son of God, which is a pretty solid argument. <laughs> but, so as not to offend, so as not to cause offense, go find a fish, and you're going to find enough money to pay the temple tax, because that's how it happens. But the point being, because, so not to cause offense, so not to raise just a pointless controversy because him going and going nope I'm the son of God I don't have to pay that tax that was a stupid controversy Jesus raised all the right controversies and we're supposed to have that sort of wisdom because eventually those powers though raised up and subjected him to death they put him in a tomb and if that stone had stayed in place and I say this lightly the incarnation would have been the greatest folly ever because it would have been taking on all the pain of being subject to something else and giving up all the privilege for nothing. But we proclaim the truth. That stone was rolled away. Jesus emerged from the grave as the herald of a new age And he did so having removed the chief weapons of this age. He defeated death. Death does not have a final claim to anyone who is Christ's. And that's why we can proclaim Busby will be cancer free. We don't know when and we pray for it now, but we know without doubt it will be so. Just as we know, if we stand up to a government and they say, that's it, you're done, we know that's not it, we are not done. Even if that is the end of the life we have here. Because the governments of this age, since the fall, have ruled through fear. They have the power of the gun, they have the sword, they control the resources, I mean, at this point in Nero, they had the power to put to death whoever they wanted for whatever reason they liked. I'm going to kill everybody between five foot four and five foot five this week. And they kind of got to go, I guess that's what we're doing this week. That was the power they had. But when Christ was raised, he took away that power. Because even if they go, I'm killing all these people, those people are cool, I'm with Jesus now. And that's not to trivialize death. Death still is a terrible, terrible thing. 
It is still the enemy of Jesus. It is something that we have every reason to revile because we serve the one who broke its power, who came to put it down. And in doing that, he broke, or should have broken, the fear that a government has over us. So when we look at a government, we hear, we know who we actually serve, and we can hear his call to be subject. And we can hear his call that being subject means we can do this, what they're asking us to, but these three things are no, and just deal with it as it comes. Because we are seeking to be faithful to his call and not the outcomes for our life, because we know what the final outcome is. And the outcome we are going to see is life and life eternal. So because of that, we fear God, we love the brotherhood, and we honor everyone, even the emperor.